Friends, as we continue to worship our Lord together, let's now unite our hearts as a congregation to pay attention to the all-sufficient word of our triune God and King. So please turn with me, if you will, in your copy of God's word to Daniel chapter 11. Now, as we saw last week, chapters 10 to 12 contain a final vision that God gave to Daniel. Daniel is first given a glimpse of God's glory and, and power so that he is well prepared to receive the detailed prophecies of chapter 11. Now, there's a lot of historical detail in this vision. And so to help you follow along, we've included a sermon guide on pages 8 to 11 so that you won't get lost in all the details. But I think the most, uh, what would be most helpful uh, to you is to remember that the third and fourth visions are truths given to Daniel in response to his prayers. When Daniel prayed for the restoration of his people, the Lord revealed to him the vision of the 70 weeks. And, and through that vision, Daniel was told that the restoration of his people would take longer than he thought it would, but it would also be more glorious than he could ever imagine. So God was concerned not just in rescuing his people from physical exile, but also from spiritual exile. And he was going to do it through his Messiah. And when Daniel thought about the 62 weeks, that extended period of time, or that troubled time, as, as Gabriel called it, in which the temple and the city would be rebuilt, and when Daniel thought about that, and when he considered the trials and opposition that the returned exiles were facing in the land, Daniel was given this vision. And so here's the point of the vision. If you don't get anything else, get this. Here's the point of the vision. God will deliver and restore his people, and no trial in history can hinder his saving purposes, not even death. For one day, God will resurrect his people and give them their heavenly inheritance. He will establish his glorious kingdom. Did you get that? I'll say it once again. God will deliver and restore his people and no trial in history can hinder his saving purposes, not even death. For one day, God will resurrect his people and give them their heavenly inheritance. He will establish his glorious kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, these truths are meant for our comfort. They are meant to make us wise and to help us endure in the face of future trials. So look at me at Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 to 45. And let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now instruct our hearts so that by the power of your spirit, Christ would dwell in us through faith. Help us renew our minds so that we would not think like the world, but put on the mind of Christ. Teach us the obedience of faith that we might follow Christ, not because of convenience, but because of conviction and love for our Savior, who is far above every rule and authority and dominion, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In his name we pray. Amen. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, the writer tells us of a time in the history of Israel when the king of Syria 
try to ambush the king of Israel. So every time he tried, he failed because the prophet Elisha would warn the king of Israel not to go to such and such a place because the Syrians were coming. Now, after trying this a couple of times, the king of Syria got frustrated and he asked one of his servants, why does this keep happening? Like, do we have a spy in our midst? To which his servant responded, actually, we don't have a spy. Israel has Elisha. And he can tell the king of Israel what you whisper in your bedroom. Now that the king had learned that Elisha was the real problem, he did some digging and found out where Elisha was and he sent his SWAT team and surrounded that city by night with horses and chariots and a great army. And when Elisha's servant got up the next morning, he nearly jumped out of his Israelite pants when he saw the massive military presence in the neighborhood. And so he ran back to Elisha saying, we're doomed, it's over, what do we do? To which Elisha responded, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open the eyes of this young man that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes and he was stunned to see the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. These were angelic forces all around Elisha. You see, sometimes when trials land on our doorstep, we can get overwhelmed because we forget who is on our side. Beloved, God is more than enough for whatever trouble this world may throw at us. Jesus said, he promised, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is what we are taught even in the book of Daniel. When the angel of God tells Daniel about a, a troubling future that awaits the people of Israel, he also reminds him that the Lord who promised to restore his people is the same Lord who rules over human history, the one who has infinite power and wisdom. This, of course, is not a new idea in the book of Daniel. You see this in Daniel 2.21. It is God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Or take Daniel 4, 34 to 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Did you hear that? No one can stop his hand. None can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, just as the angel told Daniel about the great spiritual warfare that took place behind the scenes of history, so now he reveals the truth of what will unfold on the earth. Even as we consider the truths of this vision, it's important to see that we are being given heaven's perspective on these earthly events. We're being given heaven's perspective. God is telling Daniel how he is in perfect control of these seemingly chaotic political events for this reason, so that his people would be assured of their final victory and stand firm and defiant and hopeful in the face 
of every trial. And so as we look at this passage as Christians who are living on this side of the cross, as believers who are living in the inaugurated kingdom of Christ and waiting for his second coming, I want you to see that Daniel's vision of the future to us is history. And history can teach us valuable lessons if we understand history through the lens of scripture. And so here are five lessons we can learn so that we can become wise in our understanding of the times and stand firm in our faith. You don't have to write these down. These are in your bulletins. Five lessons. The history in verses 2 to 35 teaches us about, number one, the futility of riches. Number two, the folly of human greatness. Number three, the frustration of worldly wisdom. Number four, the function of fiery trials. And number five, the fall of the final persecutor. These five lessons, I trust, will minister comfort to your soul and encourage you to faithful obedience in the face of future trials. These five lessons. But first, let's consider that first point. Look at verse 2. Remember that the angel has already informed Daniel that dark spiritual forces influence the decisions of earthly kings in order to harm God's people. Remember that Daniel is in the third year of Cyrus. That's 536 BC. And this apocalyptic vision he receives is about what will happen in, in the future, leading up to the coming of the Messiah who will atone for the sins of his people and establish his everlasting kingdom. Look at verse 2. And now, the angel says, I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. So the angel jumps forward hundreds of years into the future. After Cyrus came Cambyses II, he was followed by Smyrdas, and then came Darius I or Darius the Great. This is a different Darius than the one in chapter 6. And then came Xerxes. And he reigned from 486 to 465 BC. By the way, as I give you all this historical information and you're wondering, where should I go if I want to read more? Well, pick up the historical works of Greek and Jewish historians like Polybius, Livy, Herodotus, Josephus, and, and Maccabees. Now, Xerxes is the king we read of in the book of Esther. And this helps us understand why the angel said, I'm going back to continue fighting the prince of Persia. Under Persian rule, this spiritual battle continued in order to preserve God's people. So think of the earthly opposition that God's people faced in rebuilding the temple. Or the threat of annihilation in the book of Esther. Or the trouble Nehemiah faced while building the city walls. Now, true to this prophecy, and according to history, Xerxes loved two things. He loved his harem of women and he loved his wealth. He amassed great wealth to build an army. Look at the verse. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So Xerxes put his trust in his riches. That was his refuge. And once he had built up a formidable army, at least he thought it was a formidable army. After all, he had the best that money could buy all the fancy weaponry, he decided to take on the Greeks. History reports that at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC, the Greek navy 
gave the Persians such a shameful beating that Persia went limping back only to be invaded by the Greeks a hundred years later. You see, every now and then we read on the internet or in the newspapers, you know, the top 10 richest men in the world, a list of those. And so often we are awed by that, awed by the power of money and the doors it can open. We marvel at wealthy aristocrats and, and, and world leaders, don't we? We marvel at those single-digit number plates. You know, Xerxes was a man like that. He put his trust in riches and his kingdom fell. Beloved, it is God who sets up kings and kingdoms. And it is in him we ought to put our trust. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth. That's what Deuteronomy 8.18 says. Remember that the Persians received the kingdom from God. See that in Daniel 5.31. Why even Cyrus is called God's servant in Isaiah. He is there in history to serve God's purposes and then he's gone. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Friends, the only thing that matters and the only thing that will last forever is your relationship with the Lord and his people. So how's that going for you? How are you doing spiritually? And who in this congregation can attest and verify how you're doing? Beloved, there is a lesson for us to learn when we look at the life of Xerxes. Don't be afraid when those who oppose God's people are rich and when their earthly glory increases. Don't be intimidated by great wealth for theirs is a foolish confidence for their wealth cannot save them on the day of God's wrath. If God in his kindness has given you wealth, don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches but be rich in good works. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6. Verse 18, be generous and use the gift of wealth to serve God's kingdom purposes because God's word calls us to do so and we ought to humbly trust and obey him. Beloved, remember that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And he so often uses the weak to shame the strong, doesn't he? We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.27 and this is why we should not be impressed by human greatness. And that brings us to our second point, the folly of human greatness. Look at verses three to four. Then a mighty king shall arise, a great king from the kingdom of Greece, who shall rule with great dominion, great authority, and do as he wills. I want you to make a note of that phrase. He shall do as he wills. This is repeated again in verse 16, 28, and verse 36. And this is a striking characteristic of arrogant men who have no regard for God. This, of course, is a reference to Alexander the Great. Again, we, you see that we've jumped again. Alexander is the leopard of chapter 7 and the goat of chapter 8. History tells us that Alexander was an ambitious and impressive leader, a student of that great philosopher, Aristotle himself. 
He became a general at the age of 21 and was so strategic that within a short period of 10 years at the age of 32, he had conquered the entire Medo-Persian empire up to the borders of India. But then at the peak of his greatness, he died of a mysterious illness at the age of 33. Hence, verse 4, And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken. Notice that passive verb, shall be broken. By whom? By God himself. Friends, we ought to remember that the kingdoms of men, no matter how mighty or impressive, will not last forever. Proud and ambitious men who do not see their sin against a holy God and do not turn to Christ will perish. Psalm 49 verses 12 to 13 says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. You know, no matter how much a man may exalt himself, at the appointed time, he will return to the dust. After all, what is human glory? All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You know, the psalmist says that the number of our days on earth have been ordained by God. You know, this is a limitation that men who lust for power and greatness so often forget. For eight years, the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin tortured and killed thousands of Christians. You know, to the Church of Jesus Christ in Uganda, it would have felt like an eternity under Amin's rule. And then one day, his army was split in two. Some were for him, some against him. Later, he was deposed and he fled into exile. And then he died of kidney failure. No one came to that funeral. Beloved, we need to remember that while God's final judgment on evildoers awaits the day when Christ will return, God does and he has brought temporal judgments upon evildoers in this age as well. Idi Amin is gone. The church in Uganda is still standing. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Alexander died and his kingdom was divided. Look at the text. Divided towards the four winds of heaven. It was torn in four directions. Divided, but not to his posterity. So it didn't go to his children. Alexander's two sons were assassinated. Uh, nor was his kingdom according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Again, plucked up by whom? By God, the one who holds the very breath of those who oppose his people. Alexander's kingdom was divided among his four generals, and they were not as impressive as Alexander. Uh, they were Ptolemy, who ruled over Egypt, Seleucus, who ruled over Syria, uh, Lysimachus, who ruled over Thrace and Asia Minor, and Cassander, who ruled over Macedonia. So think about that. With all his Aristotelian wisdom and training, Alexander's impressive empire was short-lived. Friends, no matter how wise and strategic our governments may be, no matter how clever our politicians and rulers may think they are, they are no match for God's wisdom. This is his world, and he is governing it to his desired end. See, Daniel needed to know that, and we need to hear that even as we prepare ourselves for trials of various kinds. Now, in the course of governing world events, God often frustrates the wisdom of this world. 
And he often does it in ways we cannot see. And this is what we will see in our third point, the frustration of worldly wisdom. Now in verses 5 to 20, Daniel is told about the weaker kingdoms that will follow Alexander's. These verses are mainly about the battle for power and control that took place between the Ptolemaic dynasty in the south that governed from Egypt and the Seleucid dynasty in the north that ruled over Syria. And as you can guess, Israel was stuck right in the middle of this. Now I want you to notice that, this, that in this passage, Daniel is not given prophecies about what will happen in various parts of the world. Nobody's told what will happen in and around the glorious land or the promised land of Israel. So the promised land is at the center of it all. History is being viewed from the standpoint of God's covenant people. And in this we are being taught a very important lesson. And here's the lesson. All of human history is fundamentally about the spiritual battle between the seed of the serpent and the children of God. Between the city of man and the city of God. See, Daniel is being given information about what will affect his people so that they can be prepared to endure. And so we, we get to learn about all these wars and the, the treachery and the lies and the scheming that took place between the king of the south, the ruler of the Ptolemaic kingdom, and between the king of the north, the one who represents the Seleucid dynasty. Look at verses 5 to 20. Then the king of the south shall be strong. Now this refers to Ptolemy I in Egypt. So the first 12 verses are about Ptolemaic or Egyptian dominance, followed by Seleucid or Syrian dominance. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. This is talking about Seleucus I, one of his princes. Initially, his plan was to take over Syria, but it didn't go so well. And so he was helped by his friend Ptolemy to take over Syria and Babylon, and he did. But he ended up building an empire much greater than the Ptolemies. And so you can imagine this led to jealousy and conflict and many wars subsequently. Verse 6, after some years... They shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So many years later, Ptolemy II had a bright idea as he coveted the northern kingdom. And so he thought, what better way to get political and military secrets than to get into bed with the enemy? And so he gave his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus II. But there was a catch. She was given in marriage as a gesture of peace between the two dynasties, but with the agreement that Berenice's future son would sit on the Seleucid throne. The only problem with this getting into bed with the enemy, this plan, was that there was already somebody in the bed. Antiochus II was already married to Laodice. So Antiochus II got rid of Laodice, and he married Berenice instead, and she had a son. But that scheme did not succeed. Look at the text. But she shall not re retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Soon Berenice's father, Ptolemy II, died. And as soon as that happened, Antiochus put Berenice away, and he brought Laodice back. 
Now, it is said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And so Laodice, to get even, poisoned her husband Antiochus and then had Berenice and her son murdered and got rid of everyone else who was pro-Berenice. But none of this bloodshed went unnoticed by her people down south. Look at verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. This refers to Berenice's brother, Ptolemy III. Uh, he attacked the north to avenge his sister and killed Laodice and took over much of Seleucid-occupied territory. And then to add insult to injury, he did this. Look at verse 8. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. Kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar did. Uh, to carry off a nation's gods meant total victory over them. This was a way of humiliating the Seleucid dynasty. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Verse 9, Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And so a humiliated Seleucus II tried to invade Egypt, but he was unsuccessful, so he went back. But his sons kept trying to win back their honor. Look at verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through. You know, that language of coming and overflowing and passing through describes a, a raging river. And so the idea here is that there was a constant flow of conflicts. And again, shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So at one point, the Seleucids gained control of Palestinian land right up to the Egyptian border, which made the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, really mad. And so he went out and prevailed against Antiochus III. Look at verse 11. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. Now Ptolemy IV was a perverse man. He was given to debauchery and murder. He murdered his mother, his wife, and all his siblings. He led a promiscuous lifestyle with multiple male and female partners. And eventually his pride led to his downfall. Look at verse 12. And when the magnitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but shall not prevail. Well, why not? Well, because Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, as he was called, he makes a comeback. Look at verse 13. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people, your own people, Daniel, this is what the angel is telling him. And in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent among your own people. He's talking about some hot-headed Jews who shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Now, this is really strange. The angel tells Daniel that some Jews in the future will be reading Daniel and as they're doing their Tuesday night Bible study, uh, they will see that, oh, Antiochus is going to come into the promised land. And so they decide, well, let's go and give him a helping hand so that this vision will be fulfilled. Not a good way to read and apply your Bibles. You know, that would be like us saying, oh, the Bible says that the Antichrist is going to appear with false signs and wonders. That's God's will. So let's go help make that happen. No. 
God in his wisdom will do what he will do. You do what he's told you to do. It did not end well for those Jews. Did you see that in the text? They failed. And Antiochus III succeeds. Verse 15. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. So Antiochus' victory now brings much of Israel under Seleucid jurisdiction. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Now think about how horrifying this would have sounded to Daniel. Verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement, a proposal of peace and perform them. So Antiochus had a scheme of his own to gain control of the Ptolemaic Empire. Here's the scheme. He shall give him the daughter of women, that's probably a title of some sort, to destroy the kingdom. So he gives his daughter Cleopatra, no, not the one you're thinking of, that was Cleopatra the seventh. This is Cleopatra the first. He gives his daughter in marriage to Ptolemy the fifth. Not, not a very original plan, but that was a scheme. He gives her in marriage to Ptolemy the fifth, who is still a young boy. And the scheme is very clear, to destroy the kingdom, to ruin the kingdom. But even that plan is frustrated. Look at the text. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Guess what ended up happening? Cleopatra fell in love with the young Ptolemy and became pro-Egyptian. So now Antiochus, befuddled, needed to find something else to do. Verse 18. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. In one of his many exploits, Antiochus provoked the Romans, who also had their eye on the Mediterranean cities. And so a Roman commander named Scipio defeated him at Magnesia in 190 BC and, and forced him, forced Antiochus to pay a large sum of money to Rome if he wanted to stay alive. And so he humbled his insolence. Verse 19, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Now that Antiochus was drowning in debt with the Roman sharks constantly hounding him, Antiochus came up with this harebrained scheme to rob a Zeus temple so that he could pay off Rome. He tried, but an enraged mob of Zeus worshippers caught him and killed him. So now Antiochus the Great is greatly dead. But Rome still wants its money. Look at verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor battle. Now Antiochus's son, Seleucus IV, decides to do what his dad did. And so he sends his tax collector, Heliodorus, the exactor of tribute, to seize funds from, guess where? Steal money from the temple at Jerusalem, from the temple treasury. You know, the book of Maccabees tells us that two terrifying angels appeared 
and gave Heliodorus such a thrashing that he ran back to Seleucus. Later things went sour between them and Heliodorus poisoned Seleucus and he died, neither in anger nor in battle. Now as you hear about these kings and constant shifts in political power, wars and rumors of wars, treachery, murder, shady alliances, you know, this would make a great Netflix series. You know, I, I hope you can see from all this mess, all of it is described from heaven's perspective. From heaven's perspective. And it's telling us that God is silently working behind the scenes to frustrate the plans of evildoers. Even though it may not seem obvious to us, God is working to bring his saving plans for his people to fruition. Beloved, God is in the business of frustrating and judging worldly wisdom. And he has posted a notice in history to tell everyone that. And that notice is the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, it was trusting in human wisdom that caused our first parents to disregard the wisdom of God's word and rebel against him. This plunged all of mankind into sin. The Bible says that we are sinners and we have turned our backs on a good and holy God for which we stand under his judgment. But God in his great love and mercy has made a way for sinners to be saved from his wrath and reconcile us to himself. And that way is the good news that tells us about the cross of Christ. This is what the book of Daniel anticipates. The coming of the Messiah, the Son of Man who will save his people from their sins. And how does he do it? By being cut off, by dying a shameful death. And the world sees that as foolish. But the Bible tells us that this message is the wisdom of God. Jesus died in the place of sinners for all who would repent and trust in him. And that he rose from the dead to give us new life as a gift of his grace. You know, this new life, eternal life, is available to anyone who would repent and put their faith in Jesus. But those who reject him will perish and suffer eternal torment. You know, this foolish message is frustrating to everyone who thinks that they are all right with God. This is frustrating to anyone who thinks that they can make their way to heaven through their good works. This is frustrating to anyone who thinks that they can live life according and on their own terms. God frustrates human wisdom through the message of the gospel. Listen to what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 18 to 21. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Friends, to know God through Christ, to put your trust in him for your salvation, and to live a reconciled life with God as your father, that is to become truly wise. If you don't know Christ, let me invite you today to turn away from your sin, 
Turn away from your own understanding. Turn away from how you think the world operates and put your trust in Jesus. Turn to Christ and you will be forgiven of your sins and you will be with him forever in glory. Beloved, God is in the business of frustrating human wisdom. He also superintends every event in history, even the worst of trials, in order to bring about his saving purposes for his people. You know, I admit that it's, it's often hard to remember that when we're suffering. It's hard to remember that because we're so focused on the pain of our trials. But even as you think about chapter 11, is it any different from what happens in our day and age, in our times? Think about all that's happened in this region over many years. We've had the Iranian revolution of 1979, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, the Arab uprisings in 2011, all the conflict between the political nation of Israel and Palestine, the war in Yemen, now the war in Ukraine. Uh, at one point, the UAE's posture towards, towards Israel was cold. And all of a sudden, there's the Abraham Accords and everything seems peachy. Who knows of all the conversations that happened behind closed doors. And yet, here we are. How much of all those events and the intricate workings of God's providence has led to a Christian presence in this region? We will never know. Perhaps we'll find out in glory. But friends, we should trust God's wise and sovereign hand. That he is sovereign over evil. He is sovereign over the schemes of men and none can stay his hand. Every one of these trials we face and will face he intends for our eternal good to prepare us for glory. And that brings us to our fourth point, the function of trials. What does God expect of his people when these trials come? Look at verses 21 to 35. In his place, speaking of the late Seleucus IV, shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. So there's no confusion here about what heaven thinks of this creature. He's despicable. Royal majesty has not been given, meaning he doesn't have the right to reign. He shall come in without warning at a time of peace and obtain the kingdom by flatteries or smooth speech. This one is a smooth talker, full of lies and deceit. This is the dreaded Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, whom we have already met in chapter 8. Verse 22, armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant. You know, the prince of the covenant refers to the high priest Onias III, who was a godly man who resisted the Hellenization of Jerusalem and was later killed by other corrupt high priests whose loyalty Antiochus has, had bought. And this shows you how corrupt priests were in those days. You know, these were the kinds of priests that Jesus was talking to. Verse 23. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people, the Jewish people. He will win favor with the Jewish people. Those who were thrilled at the prospect of money and modernization, those who were willing to depart from the faith of Israel and from the word of God. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done. Scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. You know, Antiochus made sure that he kept the pockets of his Jewish supporters filled with money. 
The text says he shall devise plans against strongholds. So these were his plans to gain complete control over Egypt and the surrounding regions through smooth talk and corruption. But only, look at the text, but only for a time. Notice that no matter how much political maneuvering this wicked man does, he can only do it until God permits him to do so. Now, beloved, that should be encouraging to you. Our trials are never out of control. They have a God-ordained expiry date. Let that be a comfort to you. Time is in our Father's hands. Which also means that you and I will give an account of how we've used that time. Are you using that time for Him or for someone else's glory? We see in the text that soon Antiochus sets out to conquer Egypt. Verse 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. This is Ptolemy the sixth. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Ptolemy will be betrayed by his wicked advisors. Verse 27, and as for the two kings, that's Ptolemy the sixth and Antiochus the fourth, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. So much for diplomacy. And both these men made promises they had no intention of keeping, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. None of them were able to execute their wicked plans because God had ordained something else. Beloved, as you read these, passage, these verses, I hope this encourages you to pray for those things that are out of your control. It's not out of God's control. Nothing could happen till the time appointed. And so Antiochus turns back to Syria without capturing Alexandria. Verse 28, And he shall return to his land with great wealth, a lot of this stolen from the temple, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. In his heart he will hate God's people, those who love God and trust his word. His heart will be hardened just like Pharaoh's was. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed by God, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. So something has happened. Why won't it be the same? Look at verse 30. For ships of Kittim shall come against him. So on his way towards Egypt, Antiochus is attacked by the Romans and he shall be afraid and withdraw, the text says. So the Roman general Gaius Lanus showed him, stopped Antiochus on his way to Egypt and showed him a Senate decree telling him to abandon his plans for Egypt or be treated as Rome's enemy. So this is the second time we encounter the Romans. What does that tell you? The fourth beast is rising. The time for the Messiah is drawing near. See, this is how faithful uh, Old Testament saints like Simeon and, and Anna knew that the time of redemption was now because Rome's here. So Antiochus, uh, when Lanus gave him the decree, he, he took the decree, he took the decree, and then he read it, and then he said, yeah, well, I have to consult my advisors. And then Lanus took a stick and drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus' feet and said, okay, you can take your time. 
but you need to decide before you step out of that circle. Antiochus Epiphanes had met someone more arrogant than he was. And so being thoroughly humiliated, he turned back, but he took out all his anger on the people of Israel. He shall withdraw and turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. He shall recruit all those people who forsake God's covenant, people whose pockets he had filled. You know, as I think about this, uh, over the last two years, we've often heard people tell us that we should not disobey the government because they're not stopping you from preaching the gospel. That's not the reason why we should disobey the government. There is an underlying reason that we see here in the text. There is a battle going on between the city of God and the city of man. You see how Antiochus, because of something that happened to him with the Romans, turns and unleashes his rage on the people of God. Look at verse 31. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. When Antiochus attacked Jerusalem, you know, nobody was trying to convert him. Just attacked Jerusalem. He savagely butchered men, women, and children, and even took away vessels from the temple. When he identified that it was the people's worship that united them and brought them together, he stopped the daily sacrifices at the temple. He outlawed the Sabbath. He destroyed copies of the law and forbade people from circumcising their children. Anyone who tried to keep the law, he persecuted. He even went into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar. You know, now the temple had become virtually uninhabited or desolate because he had stopped the daily sacrifices. But the height of his wickedness was dis- displayed when he desecrated the temple by setting up an idol of Zeus in it. This was an abomination. This was a horrible thing to the believing Jews. And this is what is referred to as the abomination that makes desolate. Verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Once again, the people of Israel will forsake the covenant because of their idolatry, because of their love for money and safety and power. The same sins that brought about the exile. But then we hear these encouraging words. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Isn't that a wonderful way of describing the faithful? People who know their God. They will resist him and stand firm in their faith even at the risk of their own lives. Verse 33 And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Notice the wise are those who trust and obey God's word, not out of convenience, but out of conviction and love for their Redeemer. These are the faithful remnant, and notice what they do in the midst of this great persecution. They shall make many understand. See, the wise are not merely concerned about their own faithfulness and well-being. Out of their love for their brothers and sisters, they strengthen others, strengthen them to resist the cultural tide of compromise. They do that even at great cost to themselves. Brothers and sisters, does that describe your life in this congregation? 
do you strengthen others to withstand cultural thinking and compromise? They shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. Now this help came from, in the form of the Maccabean revolt. The sons of a Jewish high priest named Mattathias led a revolt against Antiochus and after a series of strategic battles, they won and cleansed and rededicated the temple on December 25th, 164 BC. A feast that is still celebrated today as Hanukkah or the feast of rededication. However, even in this, many who joined the Maccabean cause had different motives for joining the revolt. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, the text says. So this wasn't a unified group. But that did not stop God's purposes from moving forward, did it? Verse 35, And as some of the wise shall stumble, they will err, they won't fall away. After all, they are the wise who know their God. But here we see God's purposes for these trials. So that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. Now this seems to suggest that this sort of purification of the faith of God's people by trials will continue not just to the end of Antiochus's reign, but till the time of the end. Make note of that phrase, the time of the end. This is the eschatological end when Christ will come to establish his kingdom in glory. So from that time till now, we are in a period of tribulation. Between Jesus' first and second coming, we are in a period of tribulation and it's only going to get ramped up and, and worse. Beloved, we should not be surprised at fiery trials when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 4.12. Because Daniel wrote down these prophecies, Old Testament saints were able to be strengthened by the word to stand firm when Antiochus landed on the scene to terrorize the nation. They stood firm with great hope and, and trust in the coming Savior, knowing that one day Antiochus' time would be up. God would make sure of that. And so we too ought to expect trials as we wait for the return of Christ. But when we go through them, we ought to be filled with a quiet trust in God's purposes. We who know God should know that he brings many sons to glory through suffering. And these truths can help us endure. See, even though trials bring with them great sorrows, in our inner being, we can count them. We can count them as all joy. Why? Because we know that steadfast faith will be the result of those trials. James 1, 3-4. Beloved, in light of eternity, all of our earthly trials are but light and momentary. So fix your eyes on Jesus and the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know, this world and everything this world has to offer cannot satisfy you. Its, its pleasures are fleeting. I mean, think about this passage, chapter 11. This is filled with so many people chasing after power and control and earthly glory, and they barely get their hands on it, and it's gone. You know, these trials will prepare us for our heavenly home. And we can be utterly confident that those who are opposed to God 
And those who persecute God's people will eventually be destroyed. And that brings us to our fifth and final point. The fall of the final persecutor. Look at verses 36 to 45. And the king shall do as he wills. Now, who is this king? Now, normally, context would demand that we identify this king as Antiochus Epiphanes. After all, verse 32 is describing his reign of terror from 167 to 164 BC. But verse 35 has already introduced a time marker. You know, there's that phrase, the time of the end. And so we ought to read the following verses as events that will happen at the very end of time, before Christ returns. However, even though there are differences between this king and Antiochus Epiphanes, you can't help but notice the similarities. And that's deliberate. And that's because the writer wants us to see that this one is like Antiochus, but only worse. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. This is the way the Lord himself is described in Deuteronomy 10, 17. The God of gods. This one who exalts himself is that little horn from chapter 7. The one who speaks boastful things and will become great in his own mind. He shall prosper. He will get his way. And as we saw in chapter 7, he will make war on the saints and prevail against them. And he shall do this till the indignation, till the period of God's wrath is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. Again, you see that when suffering comes, we will not suffer one second more than what God has ordained. This one who magnifies himself above God is an end times persecutor of God's people, whom the New Testament calls the Antichrist. Uh, this one will arise before the return of Christ. And Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness. So listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul's talking about the day when Christ will return. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 3 to 4. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So towards the end of time, right before Christ returns, there will be a time when evil flourishes like in the days of Noah. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes, pay attention to that language, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Notice how similar Paul's words are to Daniel's. And then in verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians 2, we read this, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, as Daniel is given a vision of the future, he sees that the Antichrist, look at Daniel eleven thirty-seven. Daniel eleven thirty-seven. he sees that the Antichrist will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. Now, Antiochus worshipped Zeus. We know that. So we know that this one's not Antiochus. He's like him, but he's not him. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. This probably refers to a god named Adonis, a good-looking god, popular with the ladies. Uh, he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. The point here is that there will be nothing traditional or predictable about this man. There will be nothing more important to him than himself. You know, in the Garden of Eden, we heard a whisper saying, 
you shall be like God. And at the end of time, when evil reaches its peak, its culmination in earth's final ruler, it will be a ear-shattering boast, I am God. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. You know, this is a military metaphor. It means that after rejecting every other God, he will honor the taking of fortresses as his God. So the only thing worth his worship will be war. That's what it means. Because that will be his method of seizing power. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. In other words, war will be his religion. His foreign god. And he will amass great wealth to fund his wars. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and he shall divide the land for a price. In other words, his modus operandi will be very similar to Antiochus before him. Verse 40. At the time of the end, note that time marker again. This is how we know we're talking about the very end of time. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. Now, what does this mean? Who are these kings? You see, what will happen at the very end of time is being described using the language of the past. Jesus does this when he describes the destruction of the temple. In 70 AD, he describes a future event using the language of destruction brought by Antiochus Epiphanes. So in a similar way, in these few verses, the final Antichrist and his wars are being described in the language of how the king of the north went to war against the king of the south. So the final Antichrist is the king of the north, those who oppose him, his political enemies, are described as the king of the south. And the text says they will be no match for him. And he shall come into countries and overflow and pass through like a raging river. Sounds familiar? He shall come into the glorious land. Now, the glorious land is the land of Israel. But remember, this is symbolic. The battle at the end of time is being pictured using ancient geography. And tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. Now, these were Israel's ancient enemies. Uh, they no longer exist as nations in our time. They didn't exist in Daniel's time. So this is being described, the future is being described using ancient geography. Nor is the kingdom of God restricted to a particular nation or land. So what this means is that the Antichrist was, will set his eyes on the church, on God's people everywhere. But the enemies of God's people, he will spare. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Remember, Egypt was a superpower in ancient times. And so the idea is that even a nation like Egypt, under the king of the south that opposed the king of the north, will suffer defeat at the hands of the Antichrist. And he shall take over its wealth, the wealth of his enemies. Verse 43, he shall become ruler of treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. So Libya and Cush were south and west of Egypt. And so the idea that's being communicated here is that the entire territory governed by Egyptian control will become his. All of the Antichrist's uh, enemies' territories will become his, just as 
um, just as we saw in the previous verses. Verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. So just as Antiochus was opposed by the Romans, uh, those ships of Kittim, some of his opposers will infuriate him and he will take out his rage on the church. And he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea, that's a symbol for chaos, this is his seat of power, and the glorious holy mountain. Literally this would mean Mount Zion, where God's special presence dwells, but here it would once again represents the church in which his spirit dwells. He will make a final effort to destroy God's people, but here's the good news. Look at that last verse. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. For all his boasts and power and control over people, his end shall be deplorable, wretched, pathetic, none to help him. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the mere breath of his mouth. Beloved, we must prepare ourselves for trials and tribulations such as these. The Apostle John tells us that we know that Antichrist is coming, but already many Antichrists have already come. And this is how we know we are living in the last hour, 1 John 2, 18. Now we do not know who this person is, this Antichrist, nor do we know when he will come, nor are we supposed to speculate who that might be. What we're supposed to do is be ready. It may come in our time, it may come in our children's time. But friends, let these truths put courage in your hearts. Let it put courage in your hearts and steel in your spine. Stand firm. Hold your posts. Be steadfast in your convictions. Be defiant and bold in your obedience to his word. Because there is a higher throne to whom we swear allegiance. And our Lord Jesus, our King, He's coming for His bride. And He's coming soon. Let's pray. Lord, we give You thanks for Your Word, for these words of comfort that teach us to view our trials and the schemes of men and all the works of evil from heaven's perspective. Lord, we rejoice that all authority in heaven and on earth belong to King Jesus and that he is coming for his bride. Purify your people, O Lord. Help us trust in his name. Make us sure of his steadfast love when we are overwhelmed and remind us of the coming glory. Help us use our time wisely for eternal purposes by ministering to one another and telling others about Jesus. May your glory be known in and through your church. In Christ's name we pray.